4: Hi, this is Mark Kermode, and thanks for downloading this second episode of the new Kermode on Film podcast. This episode is coming live from the BFI South Bank in London. I'm just standing outside the bar at the moment. We're about a couple of hours before the regular show I do here once a month, which is called Mark Kermode Live in 3D. It's a show that's been going for about three years. It's essentially a conversation with people involved in the film industry. So guests that we've had over the three years have included people like Sir Michael Caine, Carol Morley and Amara Santee, Jarvis Cocker, Sam Mendes, and Sir Alan Parker. On tonight's show, we've got a great lineup. We've got Hayley Squires, who you may know from I, Daniel Blake. We've got Mike Lee, whose new movie Peterloo opens in the UK this Friday. And then finally, we're very glad to be joined by Hugh Grant. So you're going to be hearing the interviews from all those three coming up on this show. Hope you enjoy it. And if you do and you want to come along and see the live show, just go to the BFI box office and check it out. As I said, it's every month. We've been going for three years. We plan on carrying on for ten years more. Hello everybody, fabulous to see you all here. We've got an absolutely packed show tonight and uh, I'm going to sort of race through the early stuff because I want to get onto the guests. Some of you will know some of them already. However, I'm going to pretend to keep everybody in suspense by not saying anybody's names in advance. Um, we usually start by doing a couple of questions from the audience that people have tweeted in advance. I want to rush straight into these. Is uh, Jane, uh, is that you darling? Is she here? Yeah, Jane. Go ahead, because I believe me, I struggled. I struggled with getting this in the right order. Your question was,
0: uh, "How do you rank the four star is born?"
4: How do you rank the four star is born movies? And I, I, I warn you, there is a correct answer to this. And in true Nick Hornby fashion, I have tied myself up in knots about it. Okay, so here is the definitive from fourth to first. Okay, I hate to do this at number four. The Wellman, okay? And I know, I know there are great reasons for The Wellman, but the thing is, it doesn't have songs in it. It's just, you know, it's great. It's the original, fine, brilliant, sets everything in motion, bloody, bloody, blah But of all of them, is probably the least entertaining, although historically very, very important. At number three, and I know this is going to ruffle some feathers, The Babs. Because... No, I'm... Yeah, because... Because it's not meant to be Chris Christopherson; it's meant to be Elvis. You know, don't do that face. <laughs> not, I haven't been saying this for years. Oh, he's coming up with that. Yeah, it should. It should have been Elvis. It actually ended up being Chris Christopherson because Colonel Tom Parker, who was neither a Colonel nor a Tom Parker, prevented Elvis from doing it because it wasn't his idea. Barbara Streisand wanted Elvis to do it. And actually, she would have been. I, I think her choice was fabulous. Number two the new, the Bradley Cooper, the Lady Gaga, because I thought it was great, I thought it was really fabulous, and I really enjoyed it, and I was amazed by the onstage sequences, and I really did believe that Bradley Cooper was a superstar, and I really did believe that Lady Gaga wasn't a superstar, which was a really major achievement at the beginning. But the best of all of them is still the, uh, the Judy version. It's the one that holds up the most. It doesn't matter which version you see it in. It's, the, it's, it's heartbreaking, and it's brilliant. I just have to ask, Linda, my wife, are you here? Did I get it right? I did, thank you very much, okay. <laughs> It's always worrying. Okay, is Tori Doki here? Hello. Hello, Tori.
0: Um, I can't remember my question.
4: <laughs> Shall I read it out for you? Here's what we'll do. I'll read it out for you, okay? Because it's <laughs> a good you. question. And then everyone pretend that I didn't, okay? Yeah. And then so what you said was, I'll do it in whisper. I'll do it sotto a yeah. stage whisper, okay? If you've read the source material for a script, a novel, short story, play, etc. Do you find it easy to detach from that when watching the adaptation? What was your question, Tori?
3: <laughs> um, if you've seen a film and you've read or seen the original source material, like a play <gasps> or a text, do you find it easy to detach from that? And what makes an adaptation successful? That's in a
4: great your question. I'm so glad you.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I tell you, the honest answer to it is: you know, people say, you know, "Do you have a problem detaching from the source?" of the times I haven't read the source. Partly because nowadays there's 12, 14 films released every week. People say, you know, have you seen Breaking Bad? I know so, oh, I haven't got 35 hours to spare. And so the, the, generally, the source material, unless it was something I read when I was, because I don't read anything like enough. I mean, most of the time, I'm just trying to catch up with, with movies. So I read the Ted Chang for Arrival because it's a short story. I read the Jane Austen for Love and Friendship because, again, it was an easily digestible source. I haven't read The Hate You Give, which everybody says, you know, you really need to, to, to read the book. So I find it very easy to detach because I haven't read it. And generally, in terms of what makes the great, the best adaptations, it's weird how many times the best screen adaptations are from short stories. I mean, look at all the stuff that Stephen King did. Stephen King's short stories made better films than any of his long stories did. So I mean, Shawshank Redemption is a short story and Stand By Me is a short story. And there's a reason why you know, The Shining creates such a problem for everybody. Because, you know, Stephen King wrote a longer version of it. I mean, I read The Shining the first time. I never thought it's great, but it's a bit short. It could just do another 300 pages. So the trick is to get something that, that, that you'd bring something out of that wasn't perhaps in the original. I mean, there's a brilliant adaptation of... Um Falling Angel, that William Shortsburg thing by Alan Parker, which uh, he did as as Angel Heart. And actually, that film is a huge improvement on the novel. I mean, the novel's fine, but the novel's a little bit kind of, you know, trashy. And the same is true of things like what Wild at Heart would do with their source material. So the the trick is, find something that wasn't great and make it great. And finally, Davy Joe. Davy Joe, are you here? Hello. Hello. Uh, I've got the man flu, so it might not make it through the day. Um, And just just to be clear, the man flu is different to every other flu because...
3: It's 15% worse. 15% worse, that's right. (laughs) I've done my own studies. Yeah, very good. um,
4: You're uh, looking very well on it. And you you. were still able to come out tonight. But that's great, I can tell you you're ill.
3: Yeah, thank you. So I was wondering your top five or top ten... Contagious disease. Yeah,
4: I'm not doing top 10. Top 5 is what you said in the tweet. Give me a break. I've got a job, right? I've got a load of. I was watching Peterloo earlier this, you know. So, okay, top 5 contagion movies very quickly. I would lie and say they're off the top of my head, but actually, I did this in the dressing room. So, number 5, The Crazies, the George Romero, right? Absolutely brilliant, fabulous thing. Always on a double bill and late nights with, with uh, Eraser Head for some reason. It did the late night circuit around the Scala and the Phoenix and all that with Eraser Head. Number four, Contagion, okay? Contagion, the Steven Soderbergh film, which I love, and I love it for one very, very simple reason, because I saw that film at exactly the point that film criticism was having this huge crisis because of the internet, and all these people kind of was a think about, oh, the internet's going to destroy film criticism, and there's a line in it in which Jude Law is a blogger, and he says, I'm a journalist, you know, I've got to do it for my, my writing, and somebody says, blogging isn't writing, it's graffiti with punctuation. <laughs> Which actually isn't true, because there's no punctuation in blogging. (laughs) And welcome to all the bloggers who are here tonight. It's marvelous to see so many young faces. Uh, And number three, I kind of of stretched this, The Thing, the John Carpenter version of The Thing, which I think is a contagion movie. I mean, I know it's actually a parasite moving from, but because, you remember there's the scene with the Petri dishes, when everyone's got a bit of their blood and they're sticking the thing in, and you think it's going to be the guy at the end, and they stick it in the one before, and the blood leaps out of the thing? That scene. If you haven't seen it, that wouldn't have made any sense, but believe me, it's a great scene. At number two, and I say this because nobody went to see it, the girl with all the gifts, which is really great. It's a really, isn't that a great film? No one went to see it. It's it's astonishing because it's a really, really good movie. I actually, found a new way of doing something with a kind of zombie infection thing. Brilliant cast, really, really well done. British movie, you know, homegrown, lots of weight behind it. Never found the audience it should have done, it, and it's really, really good. And at number one, my favourite uh, infection movie, David Cronenberg shivers because one, it's a fantastic science fiction movie. Two, it's a David Cronenberg movie. And three, it's a contagion movie about venereal disease that ends with a happy ending when everyone gets VD. And I can't think of another movie in which that's true. <laughs> okay, so the London Film Festival has astonishingly happened. I mean, it's, you know, it's a huge, great, big festival. There is a, somebody who's been here before on uh, MK3D about two years ago, came on to talk about I, Daniel Blake. And she's had two films, not one, but two films at the London Film Festival. And we are absolutely thrilled to welcome her back to the stage. Please welcome back to MK3D, Haley Squires. <laughs> <laughs> so, OK, firstly, we've been incredibly busy since you were last. It was two, was it two years ago you were here? for?
0: Yeah, two, two years ago in December. Wow mad.
4: And what have you been doing recently, other than the two films that we'll talk about in just a moment? You've been you've been on stage.
0: I've been on stage. I've been doing two plays for the Harold Pinter season that's happening, um, acting with Poirot. I need to stop calling him that. Yeah. With the <laughs> souche acting with the souche which has been brilliant. Um, do you we, call we him we the call souche him to his face? We call him that. Yeah. Really? He loves it.
4: You say hello, Mr. The Souche. We call him, we...
0: Just here he is, the souche Normally, <laughs> yeah.
4: And is he really cool in real life?
0: He's the nicest man in the world. Oh. He's the nice nicest, kindest, funniest man in the world. The first day of rehearsals, he'd just finished a play in Bath that's actually transferring to the West End. He's um, doing an Arthur Miller play. And he came in, and he's 72. Um, and there was myself, John McMillan and Russell Tovey, all very nervous. And he came in and was just so excited. And he was talking about what costumes he was going to wear and ideas for dressing gowns, and it was just like a kid. Oh. It was good.
4: And you've been writing. Can you? you can, can, Are you allowed to tell us about... What you're writing. Can you maybe hint, gesture towards yeah, the, the Postal District I can.
0: Wor- I've just finished uh, the first draft of my first ever screenplay. And it's um, just gone into BBC Films, who have commissioned it. But I'm nervous because we haven't met and I'm worried that they're going to tell me <laughs> it shouldn't be anything, <laughs> anything that I've written. Um, it's about three generations of women in a family in Kent. Okay. And specifically about the middle woman, who will be in well, will be me, um, who comes... So you're th-
4: writing and you're going to star?
0: Yes, fingers crossed. Wow. Um, and she comes back to her hometown after spending some time in prison, and it's about her relationship with her mum and with her niece. And there's some stuff to do with bare-knuckle boxing and her f- fighting women in warehouses and drug dealing and lots of other gangster-type stuff.
4: Wow. And you, so you finished the first draft, and yeah. it's, it's, it is as you, as you want it to be?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's long. <laughs> like, it's too long. OK. But... Um, but yeah, for a first draft, I mean, this is the official first draft. I've written about eight versions of that before I let anyone look okay. at it. Um, so we we meet in a couple of weeks to find out what they're going to do. Are
4: you? Is it? Is it nerve-wracking?
0: Yes, yeah, terrifying. So
4: have you sent it? Have you? Have they got it now? Are they now They've
0: reading got it. it? Yes, BBC Films have got it. Um, I mean, they knew, They obviously because they commissioned it. Yeah. They, it took a lot to get it there. We go in and talk about development, and it's going to be this, and it's going to be that, and I had to kind of put a bit of a spin on it where I said. It's in space. Yeah, yeah. bare knuckle fighting in space. No, I said to them that it's, um, you have to frame it in a certain way, and it's, I said to them that it was kind of my cry of feminism about the women that I know and have grown up with. And actually, for me, when I said that, it was kind of like a way to get people to understand it. And now that's something that's very much stuck in my head. It's about women and how they empower themselves within this certain world.
4: Sounds fantastic. I've never been in a, in a script meeting when, presumably if you write something, every word is very, very precious. And then presumably yes. you go into a meeting and they'll they'll tell you what they like and what they don't like. Mm. Are you... OK. Yeah. Are you, is that,
2: are you all right <laughs> with that?
0: <laughs> well, it's my first one, so I don't know, but no. it's So um, Eva Yates and Rose Garnet at BBC <laughs> Films who are both two fantastic women and it's amazing that they're now running BBC Films. Um, and they're excited about it, I think, so we'll, we'll see. It's going to be... It's always hard, isn't it? Because you're kind of putting your self out there and your words and then you have to listen to people's but we're all working towards the same thing okay. if you
4: make way. it will you come here and talk about it yes yeah promise yeah. Well, in, okay. in
0: about six years time yeah okay. we'll do
4: but will you come here first yes like before everybody else yeah. before Jonathan Ross and you yeah, know yeah. oh yeah definitely Ray before Jonathan n- Ross and all that stuff you <laughs> know. definitely all
0: before that. Jonathan Ross okay
4: alright okay. um, so two films at the LFF the, the first was uh, directed by Ben Wheatley tell us about I, I mean, in both cases I'm going to ask you to sort of explain what the films are, because neither of them fit very neatly into a category. So tell us first about the Ben Wheatley.
0: So Ben's film... I keep forgetting that it's called that, because it was originally called Colin um, <laughs> For a good reason, for a good reason. Um, the, the backstory of it, I don't think Ben will mind me saying this, is that when he was making High Rise, Tom Hiddleston was doing Coriolanus on stage, and Ben was going to meet him to discuss High Rise. And Ben got to the end of Coriolanus and didn't have a clue what it was about. (laughs) And then Wikipedia'd it, (laughs) fell in love with the story, um, and decided to do his version of it. So this is about a um, very large family who all get together over New Year in a big castle in Dorset and subsequently tear each other apart. With lots of laughter along the way, but they have a big old ruck.
2: Okay,
4: we've got a clip. Can we see a clip from him? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Why did
0: you invite David? Because it's his right.
1: So, you invited him, but you don't want him here.
0: Because what I believe doesn't get in the way of what is right. It's two things.
2: Well, it was nice chatting.
1: Better get back in. Do you want me to call someone?
0: No. You're the one who loves the sound of his own voice. You don't understand that criticism is an action. Action is action.
4: When uh, when Ben was doing a QA and a with the screening here, um, he was asked to, to describe it, and he said that many people had said that when he made Sightseers that he'd basically uh, ripped off Nuts in May. And he said, OK, so this time we've ripped off Abigail's party, because he's basically working his way through the Mike Lee back catalogue. Is yeah. that is there an element of that? That's,
0: that's quite accurate, I'd okay. say, yeah. Um, they're all kind of trapped in this place where they don't really want to be, with everybody with their own agenda. Um Neil Maskell plays my brother and Sam Riley is our other brother and he's the kind of black sheep of the family who hasn't been around for five years and I've kind of thrown a grenade in there and decided to invite him along to this party Um, and it then all unravels quite quickly and everybody sort of turns on each other and the hero that comes out of it is not who you expect it's going to be. But it's not, it sound, that makes it sound really heavy and it isn't. It's, it's actually very funny because you can, you can kind of look at it, and it it's fa- family dynamics, which you know, if you don't laugh about, it, you're probably gonna cry.
4: And it was a a passion project because everybody worked on it for very, very little. It was Rook Films made it themselves without distribution.
0: So Rook Films, which is Ben and Andy Stark's company, I was working on In Fabric, the Peter Strickland film at the time, and there was lots of talk about Ben making this film in January, and he was using the same crew, and Rook Films didn't have a studio, they were doing it by themselves because they wanted to make something. They were just, you know, they'd... There's a lot of different projects they've had on the go, and for one reason or another, they haven't quite materialised yet. And Ben just wanted to do something. And so we got this group of actors together, and it was just... I think there was about 15, 20 of us, and we all went and stayed in this castle. We shot it in a castle in Dorset on this weird island that no-one ever leaves. Um, and we all stayed in the... Car- <laughs> they don't. It's called Portland, and there's, like, weird bumper stickers about always living there. It's strange. Um, we, stayed in the, we stayed in the caravan site next door um, and we did it right at the beginning of January so it was just a brilliant way to start to okay. start the year.
4: And then BBC have picked it up so it's going to get a theatrical release in yes. the next few uh, in weeks.
2: The next,
0: yeah, yeah so, so they made it for themselves and then BBC Films viewed it and BBC Comedy. Yeah. And I think it might be one of the first times they've done something like this. They, they looked at it and went, we love this. So they're going to put it on BBC Two at some point between Christmas and New Year. It all came down to Rook Films going, how do we get the most people to see this? Yeah. When it comes to independent film, dis- distribution is a huge, Absolutely. can be a huge problem. And so this is the best way of doing that, getting it to the widest audience. So it will go on to BBC Two and then they're going to keep it on iPlayer for a year. And next month, Ben is doing a tour a Q&A tour with it and the, you can, if you look on social media you'll be able to find the dates for it
4: great now you mentioned that this came together whilst you were doing the Peter Strickland film which is the other film that you had at the LFF I mean, I'm a huge Peter Strickland fan I remember seeing Barbarian Sound Studio and being completely knocked out but I absolutely love Kathleen Varga tell us about the Peter Strickland film because again it's not something I think I can adequately say oh well it's, it's a horror thriller about a mm. possessed dress
0: that's quite good (laughs) it's quite good um no it's really hard isn't it i want i described it as a story about a haunted dress set in Reddin, but we we, (laughs) that's what it is we we shot it in croydon but um uh, oh god how you said to me before didn't you make sure you know what it is because it's very hard to describe so it's a story about this red haunted dress that is being sold in an old kind of are you being served style department store where these mad people who kind of look like vampires but aren't, you don't really know what their deal is in terms of where they come from, are they human, are they not? Yeah. Um, and this dress is sold to different people, It's passed along to different people. To begin with, it's Marianne Jean-Baptiste and then it gets passed on to myself and Leo Bill um, and it basically destroys people's lives.
4: <laughs> OK, so it's a horror thriller about a killer dress. Yes. Yeah, yeah, fine, very yeah. good. With shall we laughs thrown in. Very good, shall we see a clip?
0: Yeah. Fine. I had a sleeping dream I was a size 36. And I went out with my friends to Zinzan's to celebrate, but it wasn't Zinzans. It was here. That was where it was. It was in this room and in this catalogue. Every image was of me in this slip getting skinnier and skinnier, but the measurements written next to me were getting bigger and bigger. I rang the staff bell for assistance. Two ladies came to my aid and told me to put my head between my knees whilst they tried to correct the catalogue.
4: What's it like when you read... Because I can't imagine reading that on the page because so much of what Peter Strickland does is, is in camera. What's it like when you read the script?
0: Well, I read the script. I was doing a play at the time, and i I read the script came through to me, and was asked to do a tape for it, which I ended up not doing. I just had a conversation with Peter for about an hour, because I had to—I sort of went, I can't really, I don't really know how to play this, having read the script and everything that's on the page. It's very—it's not a case of there's no sort of improvisation around it at all. It's very, very strict to what's on there. Um, But reading it and then seeing the film. It's Peter Strickland. It's his eye. He's got like a. There's a level of detail in the world, and he's like he's the only person who can really see it fully. Even Ari Wagner, who who was the DOP on it, who's fantastic, she's absolutely brilliant, who did amazing work on it. It was like we, as much as we could all do our work, he was the only one that was ever going to see that world as it then Mm. became. So there's some nuts things that happen in this. I was reading in the script, going, I don't know what this is going to look like, or really what this means. And he's managed to make it mean something and put it into a context and make it move you.
4: And did you you do it because it's him? We we found his previous work. Well, I
0: rang my dad and said, Peter Strickland wants to talk to me. And he said, whatever he wants you to do, just do it. (laughs) 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 Um, So, yes, I was. And then I I had a conversation with him and um, a Skype conversation with him for about an hour. And we were talking about where his ideas, this idea came from and his idea about the character having body dysmorphia and a lot of it's about him and women and how he, the women that he's known in his life. And I just love the way that he understands them and the kind of humor in it, but also the darkness in it.
4: So this opens in March, Colin Burstyn we can see in the next month or so in cinemas and then on uh, BBC uh, over Christmas. And your script, does it have a name?
0: Yes, it does. It's called Gentle in the Bones.
4: So Gentle in the Bones we will hopefully see in the next year, something like that, 18 months?
0: Yeah, let's all cross our fingers.
4: Fine, OK. And when it hey. happens, you come here first, you don't speak to any of the other famous yeah. people.
0: Absolutely.
4: Fabulous. Ladies and gentlemen, Haley Squires. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. now the uh, the lot of the weekly film critic is that every monday and tuesday you see the films that come out on friday and it's always that you know you, you never know what order anything's going to be in it's often very strange you go from one movie to another and sometimes it's quite disorientating Uh, This morning, however, I had a very, very powerful experience, which is that uh, the second screening of the day was Peterloo, which you've probably all heard about and read about. It is a really, really powerful film. And I'm still kind of coming to terms with the experience of seeing it, but to speak about it, please welcome to the stage, Mike Lee.
3: (laughs) Another fine mess you've got me in.
4: (laughs) Welcome to the show, Mike. I can't believe that in the three years that we've been running, this is the first time you've been here.
3: Well, I've refused every week for three years. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I know, it was getting like stalking, wasn't it? I thought you might take out an injunction. So anyway, um, Peterloo is a very, very uh, powerful piece of cinema. I read an interview with you in which you said that you were, you were astonished at how little this piece of history is known, how little this piece of history is properly taught. So on the off chance that people don't know, can you tell us
3: basically what Peterloo is about 200 years ago 2% of the population in this country had the vote and in August 1819 there was a massive peaceful demonstration in Manchester principally people wanted the vote but also they were demonstrating about the conditions of their lives really which was tough a tough time uh, for working folk and peaceful though it was, the demonstration, and people showed up in their Sunday best on a Monday, they took a day off work, there were no weapons, the authorities went in and it became the Peterloo Massacre, because that's what it was. The film we've made finally culminates, does it not, with the massacre itself, but you see a whole range of people from all sides who are in one way or another, part of this saga. Is
4: this something that you've wanted to make for a while? Because it has, the, it has the... I mean, everything you do has the feel of a passion project, but this does feel like something that was very... This is a weird thing.
3: I grew up in Manchester, mm. and many of us that did knew nothing about it. I mean, I grew up, literally, you could get on the bus in 15 minutes to where it happened. Nobody really talked about it it's a strange thing and when we worked on the film a whole bunch of us who from the Northwest and there's lots of people from the, lots of actors from the region from the area are in the picture people ranging from their 20s to I'm, I'm in my mid-70s you know and we all said no we didn't know anything about it some people did mm-hmm. and now there is people are starting to know about it and yet historically if you look at it it was a major event, it was a major landmark in the history of uh, democracy and the old of the 19th century. Um, you know, you had chartists and the rise of the unions, socialism and, and eventually people getting everybody, universal suffrage. Is there anything about the
4: particular time now that makes this any more relevant than it would have been at any other time?
3: We, st- we decided to make the film about five years ago, just after we finished Mr. Turner. Mm-hmm and as soon as we started to prepare it almost on a daily basis we found ourselves saying you know what this is really relevant it's becoming increasingly so and we started preparing it before brexit before donald trump uh all oh, those halcyon days <laughs> good times remember them i mean you know we um, couldn't have anticipated what was going to happen so it is increasingly relevant.
4: Yeah. And the, because of the way that your process works, everyone that we see on screen, everyone is thoroughly researched. You, do, you, know, you tell them to go away and research their characters. There's a lot of history to absorb. So presumably there was a very, very long period
3: of researching because it's a huge project, Mike. It's huge. I mean, we researched for a good long while before we got stuck into the yeah. preparation period with the, with the actors. We spent, as always, six months doing that stuff with the actors. I mean, I have to say... I would probably say this about any of my films, but it 's certainly the case with this one. I was served by a most fantastic gang of uh, brilliant actors and really great character actors people intelligent actors, actors who could not only act of course but you know could research and understand what we were doing and improvise and do all that stuff you know, and no egos you know people really working together, and it was great. Uh, there are 150 or so uh, named yeah. characters in the
4: film. I'd like to show a couple of clips. The first clip we're going to show is from early on in the film, in which they're talking about the, 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 the meeting which is coming up, which is going to be a peaceful meeting, and there is not universal approval that this is necessarily such a great idea. Here's a
0: clip. There's going to be a big march.
3: Aye, mother, at Petersfield.
0: Outside. Aye. Not indoors. No. In broad daylight? Yes.
3: On a Monday.
0: A Monday? I know, it's
3: daft. Second Monday in August.
0: Not go to work? Aye, we'll have to make do without us. We'll get the sack, not if all the mills turn out. Playing with fire? No mother, this one will be different. Different how? Oh. Well there's hundreds going, women and children and all. To turn out in our Sunday best. Aye. Oh well i best get my darning needles out then. The
4: film starts on a battlefield and in some ways, you know, ends on what's described as a battlefield. But the the, the triumph of it is that in the move towards... You said it ends with the Peterloo massacre. But in the build-up towards that, you do get this sense of getting to know the individual characters, as has always been the case with your films, and women, children, peaceful marching. This is the thing which is stressed, So that as we move towards what finally happens we really feel invested in, in the, the lives and the struggles of the people whose, you know, whose stories we are following. When so many intertwining stories, Mike, is it easy to, to, to move the narrative through that? I mean, I know this is something that you've done before, but on this scale, it is quite extraordinary.
2: Well,
3: I appreciate what you say, and it certainly was a task. Um, I mean, there are several things to say about that. First of all, I think what is important is that we film directors, unlike painters and novelists and poets, we don't make films by ourselves. You know, it's a great collaboration yeah. of very talented people, not only on the artistic side, but on the organisational side, on both, and people on both sides of the camera, obviously. So I think there's all that. But also, speaking from what I think is the point of view of the question, uh, which is my role as the dramatist, if you like, as the film uh, the, as the author of the film um, I mean you know whether you take whether i 'm dealing with as I frequently have uh, two or three people uh, fighting knocking lumps off each other on a staircase in a suburban house, or whether it 's this i mean it 's still a narrative it 's still has to live. It still has to be organic. It still has to be spontaneous. It still has to be real. So it's just a question of uh, keeping a level head and um, dealing with it, and you know,
4: organising it. Really. You talked about the number of credited cast. There are there is um, the scenes when we actually see the the march of the meeting itself, and they look enormously expensive. I read somewhere that in fact the number of extras that you had actually was not. Huge! That what you were doing is you're employing smart camera angles and using a little bit of, of CGI. A lot of CGI. A lot of CGI. Okay. Well, I'd like to just show a clip from the sort of the last movement of the film because I think it does give people a sense of the scope of what happens. Okay. White <laughs> oh, hat. Look. look,
2: look. That's
3: Caesar
2: himself. And the women. The ah, the
4: And the fact that there you have, you know, say, how do, how do, and the smiling faces, and it does make what, what we know is coming uh, all the more horrendous. What do you hope that an audience takes away from the film? I mean, is it primarily to
3: tell them a story that they perhaps don't know? What do, what do you want them to take from it? You know what? You know this very well. I've never made a film where I say to the audience, think this, you know? Um, I always leave you to take away stuff to ponder, argue about, meditate about, reflect on, um, consider, well, maybe that should have happened or this might have happened or why did that happen, all kinds of stuff. And in the end, although, of course, this film is, in the most obvious sense, the most overtly political film that I've made, that's to say it deals with politics, but it's not the only time that's happened. Um, in my films this film is no exception in the sense of it is not for me to say finally it's about this Mm. I leave you as you know and when folks see it they will know that I leave you in a very emotional place Uh, you you, you sympathise there are things to be angry about there are things to remember and reflect about etc and certainly since no audience can possibly decode and process a film other than in terms of how we are in our own lives now uh, that is what can and must and is the only thing that can happen when you watch the film I want to ask you finally an aesthetic
4: question I was very struck watching the film which it does have these very expansive scenes but there are there are scenes of families and friends indoors and and I was looking at certain compositions and I thought that's very painterly and I was thinking of Vermeer, and I was very, very struck by the cinematography. Of course, you know you're a brilliant cinematographer, and I was thinking that Tim Spall came on the, the show some time ago after he'd done Mr. Turner, and I want to ask you whether or not working on Mr. Turner affected your your, your eye.
3: Um, it's a more complicated matter than that, really. I mean, Dick Pope, the cinematographer, and I have been working together. Uh, uh, he's shot everything I've done since Life Is Sweet in 1990. Um, we're obviously on the same wavelength we our collaboration involves working together but also in a creative way pushing each other and pushing ourselves so that we you know from the extreme way that we shot that, that he photographed naked to the reference of Turner that informed this film to the way that he researched Victorian theatre lighting for Topsy Turvy all of those things are cumulative so it would be it probably would be actually dishonest and perhaps even a bit disingenuous for me to pretend that there was a very simple progression from Mr. Turner to Peterloo obviously in both cases we're dealing with the early 19th century one of the things that isn't quite what you're talking about but nonetheless inform some decisions about uh, what you see visually in Peterloo are the caricatures of Rowlandson and Gilray and Cruikshank, right. particularly when you see um, the scenes of the Prince Regent and his mistress and things it's very much that's going on as well but in the end it's all about looking at this certainly the stuff you mainly think about, it's all about the look of the place and the, the, the grit and grime of the world that we're depicting you
4: know? You know, my, I've interviewed you several times over I mean I've been a, a film journalist for something like 30 years I can't remember the first time one of the things I love about you the most is you have the most elegant way of answering no I have ever heard <laughs> from a filmmaker
3: well now actually I want to talk about that <laughs> Um,
4: listen, uh, congratulations on the new film. It opens on Friday, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a wide release, yes, so people will be able to see it around the country. Yeah. I wish you every success with it. I fully expect it to turn up in the forthcoming awards season. I know that awards are...
3: I'll believe it when I see it. OK. <laughs>
4: Thank you for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Lee. Thank you, Thank you Mike. Now, after this uh, MK3D, there's gonna be an MK4D in which uh, we ask somebody to introduce a guilty pleasure, a film that they, that they feel particularly strongly about that perhaps isn't universally accepted as a stone-cold classic. Before he introduces his uh, guilty pleasure for MK4D, please welcome to the stage the very wonderful Mr. Hugh Grant. How are you? Yes. Hugh
1: how could you have a list of the 13 best horror films and here not we include go. The Lair of the White Worm Ah <laughs> Well I'm glad you brought that up
4: Hugh because in fact let's 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 start there because I wasn't going to go there but since you did So Lair of the White Worm which is a film directed by Ken Russell who I have to say still one of the great underrated British geniuses, because despite the fact that Ken Russell was at one point, I think the only British director ever to have three uh, films playing simultaneously in the, in the West End, that he made, uh, you know, Women in Love and The Devils, which is the great desecrated work of British cinema, and yet isn't recognized on the same. Sorry, I'm going to stop going on about this, but The Man's a Genius, you work with him, what was it
1: like? <laughs> well, I loved him, uh, and he was very fu- genuinely funny. Uh, it was a very strange experience because uh, this horror film script arrived and he wanted me to be in it and uh, we all took it very... uh, Horror film, horror film, right. And then there was a a read-through the night before we started shooting, or the the day before. And as we read it, the cast couldn't keep a straight face. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I saw him looking slightly uneasy, partly because his wife had written it uh, or adapted it from the Bram Stoker thing. And, And he shot it, therefore, as a semi-comedy, I think. well I assume it was a semi-comedy we never really knew but he was lovely he was, he, was, he was fantastic in the mornings and then in the afternoons in those days he had a good lunch had a good lunch <laughs> he had a very good lunch and uh, his directing technique in the afternoon was not classic <laughs> in terms of how you handle actors I, I remember doing a scene in it um, where I had to pick up a broadsword and Chop a woman in half as you do in a Ken, Russell Ken Russell film. Yeah. yeah. And I said, after a few takes, I said, Ken, that doesn't feel quite right. And he said, Fuck, how it fucking feels. Do it how I fucking showed you, you <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: But you had a, it was a pleasant experience and you have fond memories of the finished film,
1: obviously. The finished film is nuts. It's not People, people who smoke a lot of pot love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very sad. I remember the opening night and thinking, funny, no one's invited me to a premiere and it's because there wasn't one. It was shown, I think, in one cinema pretty much in the Haymarket. And uh, I went with some friends. And the whole cinema was completely empty, except for a little group in the far corner, which was Amanda Donohoe and her friends. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So uh, it was a bit sad. Now, uh, Hugh, one of the reasons that you're here, other than to
4: talk about your guilty pleasure, which we will get to, is that there is is what I think is officially referred to as awards buzz at the moment around Very English Scandal, which, of course, played on the the BBC and is now available through Amazon and streaming services. And... It's an extraordinary performance, and I was weirdly enough I was in Bafta when they did the preview of it, and I didn't I didn't know this is the this is this you probably
1: won't remember this I do you were sitting sadly at a table I was sitting working yeah. I just <laughs> I look like when I, was, when I was working I remember who's that thinking who's that man with no friends
2: oh <laughs> yeah, can
1: Not I can commode. I commode yeah. <laughs> I'd say what actually happened
4: Hugh was that. I was working very intently and suddenly all these really starry people start turning up, you know, Stephen Frears and everyone's there and then somebody said the thing, and of course it was that they, they were doing the screening of the, of the whole thing and then you came up to my table and I was so starstruck and you went and you said Mark, how are you? And I thought, God, Hugh Grant knows who I am. And then you said, are you here for my thing? And I said, no, I'm here for Simon Mayo's book launch. And I thought, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was hurtful. <laughs> <laughs>
4: So, um, I, I, imagine that every, I imagine that most people have seen it, but for those who haven't, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, the scandal the first time around. For those who haven't, give us the, the quick background to the scandal.
1: Well, it was, uh, it was... Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party in the 70s and um, a great member of the establishment, Old Etonian, ex-Oxford, very well-connected, beautifully-dressed, debonair, charming... Uh, and charismatic and led the liberals to their sort of greatest uh, electoral successes that they've ever had, actually. Um, but meanwhile, uh, harbored the secret, which was that he was gay despite being married and he'd had an affair back in the 60s and with a man who sort of hounded him for the next 20 years and it, to the point where Thorpe appears to have put out a hit on him, um, a very amateurish hit that went very badly wrong and they got the dog, not the man. Um, it's, it's still astonishing to think this really did happen
4: in the relatively recent past.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I don't know how many hits are taken out nowadays in the House of Commons. <laughs> but I, having spent six years uh, sort of doing hacked-off stuff yeah. and spending a lot of time in the House of Commons talking to a lot of MPs, I, I was always struck by the similarity of the... type of person who goes into politics and show business and you know the person who called politics show business for the ugly I think was right Uh, (laughs) because there's this extraordinary look at me narcissism going on and that was a key to Jeremy Thorpe it was you know look at me look at me look at me and don't you dare try and ruin my career Norman Scott because if you do I'll kill you could you give us a thumbnail of how you got into the character of
4: Jeremy Thorpe? Because I was really, really struck. As I said, I, I remember seeing this on the news when, I, you know, when, it, when it first happened. And obviously, I've, I, I think I've seen all of your films, Hugh, and I was really struck by how much you'd managed to capture. I mean, was the gait or the poise? Because you don't actually look in real life very much like Jeremy Thorpe, but on screen you do absolutely embody, as I remember that character being on the news. Uh,
1: well, I had a very good makeup guy. Uh, who I actually rather queenly said I shan't do this film without him uh, because he, he is very good at, at, at uh, sort of finding just a few things that you know, change you quite dramatically and lean towards the character without it becoming a load of prosthetic nonsense so in
4: the case of Jeremy thought what would, do, what
1: would a few of those things be? hair uh, which uh, he shaved this front bit off um, which made me I'm told unshaggable for six months um, <laughs> And uh, <laughs> Amazing, just that difference um, <laughs> My children cried when I saw them uh, And, yeah, and I, I lost a lot of weight I went herring around Richmond Park on a bicycle for months And uh, things like that, and brown contact lenses But then I did, you know, he's there on YouTube And uh, I found quite early on That I could do a sort of imitation of him And then I thought I can't just do an imitation, you know Ben Whishaw's in this, he'll be doing proper acting. I, I got out of it.
2: <laughs>
1: so I did do a lot of digging as well into you know, books and I, I met lots of people who knew him and tried to piece him together uh, in the way that you are meant to in a sort of Stanislavski kind of way. Okay. Yeah.
4: Shall we see this? As I said, this is a monster, this is from throughout the drama and I think they give people a sort of sense of the, of, of the overview of the
1: scope of it, so let's have a look. I need you to see him in person. And warn him off, and I mean seriously, go and put the shits up in the little sod. You tell him that that amounts to blackmail, and that he will have the full weight of the law upon his head if he ever tries anything like that again. And you make it very clear that he is not to contact me ever, he is not to talk about our former association in any shape or form, and he is not to write to my mother describing acts of anal sex under any circumstances whatsoever. For God's sake, Jeremy, if we're members of Parliament. We can't sit here and discuss murder. Well, no, right? I really don't care. I don't care if we shoot him or we strangle him or we poison him or we bludgeon him or we tie him up in a sack and drop him in the Thames. There is only one way for us to survive. Norman Scott has got to die, so how? It's amazingly intense.
4: I mean, obviously, your relationship with the, with the director was particularly good because you'd worked with him before and you trusted each other.
1: Yeah, Frears uh, on the Florence Foster Jenkins, that is true. I mean, he's mad. You've interviewed him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, suits me, it suits me very well because he doesn't speak. Uh, he, and I thought he would when I, when I accepted Florence Foster Jenkins. I thought, Christ, Stephen Frears, you know, he wins all these prizes. He's sort of arty and there'll be a lot of talk about character and motivation and all these things which I'm not really accustomed to doing, just romantic comedies. and um, <laughs> So... I thought of about 20 or 30 really intelligent questions about the script and I went to meet him for a cup of tea somewhere and I started with question one. I said, but you know, this moment here, do you think, do you think that's a real sign of love or is he just maybe, he's just using her? What do you think? Well, I don't know, no idea. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the director. <laughs> said, All right, well, question two. And that's how, well, that's how I went. He, he has never expressed an opinion. Um, and I, I call him openly to his face an idiot savant <laughs> because he just does it completely by instinct and uh, uh, there's, a, there's a famous I used to be a golf addict and there's a famous golf coach in America who, who is on the spectrum when you have a lesson with him he doesn't watch you he, he lies on the ground with his head turned away and listens to the sound you, the, the ball <laughs> makes as you hit it and he, he goes, oh, okay, you're slicing and uh, then tells you why you're slicing and Frizz is rather like him in that he just watches a monitor and expects to be entertained, and <laughs> he can something will tell him if there's something wrong, but he, he, he won't be, he just do it again, do it again, do it again, and um, and eventually you sort it out for yourself. Uh, but it's just a perfect sense of, of false beats and uh, it's instinct. Yeah, I think he's brilliant on choosing material. Yeah, and I think he's brilliant at ch- choosing his crew, and I, I think he's rather good at casting. <laughs>
4: You, you, you mentioned Florence Foster Jenkins, which I absolutely loved, and uh, I'd like to, to show a clip from it, which actually is, you know, you said the, the, the question was, does he really love her or is he just using her? And actually mm. I think one of the great things about the film is it does raise that question, but during the course of the drama there are certain moments in which you see real tenderness between them and you do see him as somebody who, who is loving as, you know, as well as uh, opportunist. This is one of my favourite scenes, and this is him basically seeing her to sleep. And she's been unwell throughout the course of their entire relationship because of what happened in in her uh, first uh, marriage. And and I think there is real tenderness and
1: heart in this sequence. So let's have a look. Now, my bunny, you must sleep.
3: I don't want this day to end. I know, I know.
1: (laughs) Shut your eyes.
3: Only if you recite for me.
1: Very well. Let me not, to the marriage of true minds, admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove.
4: It's, it's such, a, such a beautiful one. I love that film because I think that it does manage to do that thing about you're not laughing at her. You are laughing with her, and you know that although it is very, very funny because she has this thing about being the you know the worst singer yeah, in the world, yeah. and there are moments of high comedy in it. But you feel sim- and I think you do, because your character makes us feel
1: that. Yes, it's all down to me. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, th- I I don't quite agree with that. I think you laugh with her and at her, okay. which is what I think is interesting. Actually, with uh, with the idiot savant's films is that he likes to. We're we just going to call him that from now on. <laughs> he likes to sort of dick around with with uh, genre and tone, yeah. saying, well, "What is this? What are you watching here?" You know, and uh, I, th- I think that's sort of what he's up to.
4: One of the things that you've developed um, uh, a very self-deprecating line, and you know, just earlier on, you said oh, romantic comedies like that, and uh, in this, you're playing somebody who is, a, you know a not very successful actor. There's, an, there's, a, there's, a, there's a hint that he may at some point be, but it hasn't really happened. And then, of course, in Paddington, you play this incredibly pompous performer who you know keeps the rooms of his trophy. And you have developed in later life a kind of something which almost looks like a sort of self-referential laughing, you know, laughing at yourself in a way which is, I think, really really brilliant and very, very sort of telling because you've played bad actors more than once and you are a very, very accomplished, uh, you know, serious actor but you're, off, you're very offhand about yourself. What you say, oh, romantic comedies, like anyone could do it.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, it's... I, the last three things I've done, I have effectively been offered parts of roaring narcissists and uh, (laughs) I think about that sometimes (laughs) to have been offered one might be considered a misfortune (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah but um, (coughs) what else can I tell you I mean yes that's that's what they are can
4: we enjoy a clip of you being a roaring narcissist in
1: Paddington too Yeah, Okay. Uh, (laughs) Prison is no laughing matter. And I should know, I spent three years in Les
2: Miserables. (laughs) Mr Buchanan, you live on the same street as the defendant. I do. And you were an eyewitness to the events that night.
1: Indeed, I was. I was up late when I became aware of a hullabaloo in the street below. I went to my awards room, which is a large room overlooking the newspaper kiosk and I saw young Paddington riding a rather disreputable-looking hound.
4: Do you want to explain the tweet that you did recently at the football match with the person holding up
1: the sign? I think you should say this because I don't want to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a natural tweeter, Uh, but I was was sort of forced onto it by my hacked-off friends. I never, ever tweet about show business or my career or anything like that, uh, yuck. But I happened to see, just as, uh, just as um, the Thorpe film was, was coming out on Amazon in America, I saw uh, a tweet of some people at the World Cup, uh, some Aussie fans holding up a sign saying, fuck Paddington. And uh, so I, I put that picture on Twitter and underneath I said I did Um, (laughs) a very English scandal opens on Amazon on Friday
4: (laughs) Was Paddington fun to do? I mean it must be weird because when you are on set who, is Ben Wishaw there doing, because he did the voice afterwards how does it
1: work? No Ben wasn't there at all Uh, yes, well you uh when it's a scene with the bear, who is created in a computer later, uh, you're given a choice. There's a, there's a <clears throat> they have an actress who's the right height for Paddington, who's great, very nice. Um, very nice. No- yes. I tripped over at the premiere, actually. I don't know. In a crowded room, but she's, she's lovely. And then there's, um, or you can have a stick with a bear's head on the end, which is just frightening. Uh, <laughs> And then you can have uh, just a stick. And in the end, I went, I went with a stick. Um, and it's easy to work with that? I've, I've known people who are harder to work with. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So,
4: um, on a serious note, uh, there, is, there is a lot of awards talk now about the, the thought performance. Does it matter? Do you care? Um, well... I mean, I read Golden
1: Globes being banded about. I, I don't know because I, I don't really know. I don't I don't I don't know how that stuff works very well. Uh, but clearly, being a narcissist, <laughs> any praise, <laughs> you know, is just heaven. <laughs>
4: is that is it genuinely? You would you? It's just nice because if you get a nomination, it's
1: lovely, and if you win.
2: Traditionally,
1: I've enjoyed in my acting career the parts of the job you're not supposed to enjoy. You're you're supposed to enjoy the work. I've always hated that. Um, (laughs) I like the money and the praise. (laughs) Uh,
4: Okay, um, I'm going to end with a, with, with another clip. A clip I'm, I don't know whether you're as crazy about it as I am, because I, you know, you went oh romantic comedy, and I am in love with Love Actually, and I, I know that everyone's seen it a million times, and it's Christmas, and it's it's now become like it's a wonderful life. It's one of those things that everybody sits around and watches every single Christmas, and I think there are things in it that are just, just superb. And, um, but before we, we do that, um, you're going to come back at half past eight to introduce your guilty pleasure as part of MK40. Would you tell us what your guilty pleasure is?
1: Yes, it's, it's the Pink Panther. But I have a guilty secret about my guilty secret. Yes. Uh, do I share that? I think you should do, Hugh. I think you've shared everything else. There's no reason to stop now. <laughs> Well, this is awful because I was asked, you know, prior to this thing, give us some suggestions for your guilty secret. I came up with a few, and I thought, oh, the Pink Panther. I love that, Pink Panther. And then I thought this weekend, well, I haven't seen it for ages, so you might have to talk intelligently to Mark Commode about it. I better watch it again. So I got it down off um, iPlayer or whatever it was, and uh, halfway through, realized I'd never seen it in my life. <laughs> 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 I uh, I knew I knew I loved Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau and Herbert Lom, you know, being uh, his boss. There's hardly any of that in the first <laughs> one. <laughs> well,
4: look, we shall talk at uh, length yeah, okay. about about <laughs> about the entire Clouseau okay. thing. You know, can can you? I'm sure you can do this. Can you get from Inspector Clouseau to the Exorcist in one move? No, of course not. No. Uh, Second, the best Inspector Clouseau film shot in the dark was written by William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Don't be silly. That's no, true. There we go. So, um, <laughs> so Hugh will be back to speak intelligently and lucidly about a film of which he has seen half... Uh, at, at half past uh, eight. I want to end, Hugh with uh, a, a, a speech of yours from Love Actually um, and I, you know, I know that critics can be sniffy about this and say, oh you know it's, it's cheesy and bloody, bloody, blah this is a speech which when it turns up in the film you're playing the, 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 the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister frankly I think we all wished we had <laughs> and this is a particularly uh, lovely subplot which I think is even more relevant today than it was then in which he's had a fractious meeting with the American President who is a boorish groping Creep, and there is this moment <laughs> when suddenly there's a there's a sort of there's a there's a public uh, uh, press conference, and our prime minister stands up to the boorish groping creep, and I remember the first time I saw it, I, you know I, I swelled, and I watch it again now, and I feel exactly the same way. So just before we show this, because you, know, you showed it to swelled, ins- yes yeah, swelled, no not. S- <laughs> Well, obviously, obviously <laughs> Hugh, your presence always makes me too uh. but I was particularly excited by uh. this, this clip. Do you want to say anything about this before we play this? It's not now.
1: <laughs> Britain. We may be a small country, but we're a great one too. Country of Shakespeare, Churchill, the Beatles, Sean Connery, Harry Potter. <laughs> David Beckham's right foot, David Beckham's left foot come to that. And a friend who bullies us is no longer a friend. And since bullies only respond to strength, from now onward, I will be prepared to be much stronger. And the president should be prepared for that. It's, great.
4: it's great. So, Hugh, uh, you'll be back in about half an hour to talk us through the intricate detail of uh, <laughs> the Panther. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I do wish you all the very best in the award season. I know that I know people say it's not, not you know, it's not relevant, but I think it. I think it is, and I think, I think, I think, if you don't win, you will have been robbed. Uh. So, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, join me in thanking the prime minister we never had, Hugh Grant. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I get very welled up by that because um, uh, I've told this story a million times, but um, when my wife, Linda, had to go off to a conference in America, and she went without uh, me and our kids, and uh, it was, she was away and, and was sort of bereft, and she had the plane flight, it was eight hours long. And so she just watched Love Actually over and over (laughs) and over again for eight hours. And by the time she came back, it was the favorite film in our household forever. So anyway, that's it uh, for uh, this show. Please join me in thanking firstly, Nick, who's been doing all the visuals. Uh, Hedda, who has produced the show as she has done for three years. The BFI for having us. (laughs) Hayley, whose films are out just before Christmas on BBC Two and then in March and then within the next two years' time when you're going to come up here before you go and talk to Jonathan Ross and everyone else. (laughs) Mike Lee, Peterloo opens on Friday. And Hugh Grant, who'll be back in half an hour. Thank you very much. See you soon. Well, there we go. That's just a flavour of the Mark Kermode Live in 3D shows that, as I said, we've been doing here at the BFI South Bank every month for about three years now. Hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you want to get in touch, the easiest way is to go to Twitter. My Twitter handle is at KermodeMovie and just mark your question or your comment or whatever it is, hashtag Kermode on Film or hashtag KOF. Thank you for downloading. Please download the next one. And like I said, get in touch and tell us what you think we should be doing here on Kermode on
1: Film. You've had a nice time, haven't you? Now I'm going to kiss you.
2: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.